Thanks for listening to the City Church Podcast. This sermon is part of our series entitled Glorious Perspective, where we will see how the Sermon on the Mount outlines God's plan for a life of joy. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter... Come on now, somebody knows. Chapter 5. Yeah, we've been in chapter 5 for 100 years now. And here we are in chapter 5. If you're uh, just joining us today, maybe you haven't been around the last few weeks, we've decided to take an extended amount of time and study the beginning of the most famous speech in the history of the human race. It's the speech that Jesus gives recorded by Matthew, one of his closest followers, in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this particular part of the speech is known as the Beatitudes. Jesus gives eight very short, very power-packed phrases that really describe for us, paint a picture for us, the reality of the Christian life, what it means to know God, what it means to follow God, what a follower of Jesus looks like. And uh, it's been pretty powerful so far, has it not? Hopefully it has for you. I know for me, God is doing a work in my soul as we've studied these things. And so we started with this idea of poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. Becoming fully aware of the fact that I have nothing to offer God. That I can't earn my way to God. There goes half of all the uh, broken religion, right? I, I can't earn my way to God. I can't do enough good deeds to pay penance to God. I am bankrupt before God. Poverty of spirit. Everything begins on that foundation. And then we grew out of that a morning, right? A morning that says, I don't want this sin in my life. God, I hate this sin. I desire accountability. I desire to be holy. And then out of that morning came meekness, this awareness that God cares for me so I can be uh, selfless in my living because the Lord truly does care for me. And then two weeks ago, we talked about a hunger that starts to grow in our hearts, a hunger for righteousness. I just want to be right with you, God. I want to do what's right. And then from this blessed are the merciful, those that extend mercy to the people around them. Blessed are the merciful. So today we find ourselves, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And a little phrase here, which I think I say this every week, but which this is so far, this is my favorite one. I'm losing credibility. But they build one on top of the other on top of the other. And, uh, and so we want to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Here we go. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall, look at this promise, they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, we've talked about six beatitudes so far, or uh, five beatitudes so far. This will be the sixth. And we've seen some incredible stuff. But I don't know if we've seen something quite like this. The glory of God, the majesty, the awe, the wonder of God filled in this verse. They shall see God. You know, the great cause of every religion, of every gathering of people that deal with spiritual things is this desire, I want to see God. And here Jesus gives us the pathway. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. So let's, uh, let's pray and let's ask God this morning to speak to us, even in our own personal brokenness. Jesus, we pause right now as we've read your scripture and I ask you in the name of of Jesus, that you would show us your light today, that you would show us what it means to be pure in heart, and that you would move us by your hand of grace along the path of purity of heart, that we could see God. God, I thank you 
that today you are going to do something in our hearts that will change us forever. I believe that. And we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I'm 32 years old, full disclosure, 32. And uh, for those of you that are younger than 32, I need to speak with you about a terrifying truth from past ages, okay? Many ages ago, uh, when I was a young lad in the 80s, which was a really great time of life, I think. I like the 80s. But, uh, but uh, I know John, who's playing guitar, likes the 80s. Wherever you are, John, he's an 80s guy. But, uh, you know, back in the 80s, if you had to go to the bathroom and you had to go maybe at a baseball game or some outdoor event, you would go to a porta potty. And in those days, if you were lucky, you had toilet paper in the porta potty, but you did not have any hand sanitizer. Now, I know that this is disgusting for some of you that you think, wait a minute, I know that some of you right now, right here, have hand sanitizer on you. It is on your person at this very moment. You have it in your purse. You have it maybe in your pocket. You have it attached to your keychain. You are always equipped with some Purell. But Purell did not come into notoriety until 1996. And so before 1996, thousands of people were dying at age 12, 13, 15, because they didn't have the capacity to be constantly purifying their hands. I don't know if you've noticed, we have an obsession in our culture with clean hands. Now, I'm all for clean hands. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for clean hands. I've been that guy in the bathroom washing my hands, singing happy birthday or whatever it is that you do to make sure you spend enough time under the water with the soap and see some guy come out of the stall and walk up and look and kind of fix his hair and just leave. And you're like, oh my goodness. Oh, someone's going to die because of you. I mean, like, you know, you just, it spooks you. The other day I was at home with my family and my one-year-old came out of the bathroom, which he's not supposed to be in the bathroom, but he got in the bathroom some way and he came out of the bathroom with a new sword. It just happened to be the toilet bowl cleaner that he had in his hand. And he was like, no, 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 this little one-year-old. And my, my wife's reaction was incredible. She saw him and she didn't speak words. There are no words for moments like this. She just went, and she ran over and she grabbed the toilet bowl cleaner out of his hand. We love clean hands. People do all types of things to pursue cleanliness of hands. I went to the doctor a while back and I watched as the doctor came in and he used some Purell. I was like, oh, that's cool. Good. I don't know who you were touching before me. That's fine. 99% of the germs are now clean, so it's good. So uh, he does that and he talks for you for a few minutes and he does a few things and then he does it again. And I'm like, oh, is, there some, is it me? Is there something wrong with me now? And then by the time I finished, he had used Purell, like, I don't know, multiple times. And I walked away a little self-conscious, like, gosh, did I, did I come off as funky or dirty to you or something? You know, but we just love clean hands, you know? We love clean hands. We love clean air, too. You know, the government passes all types of laws. We have emissions tests and all this stuff. People run air purifiers in their homes, which is great. It's wonderful. We like to cleanse our bodies. We do all types of different diets or eating exercises or habits. We use, uh, you know, we go paleo or vegan or South Beach or organic or whatever so that we can just kind of cleanse our bodies physically. That's a wonderful thing. You know, we do that. And, you know, we like a clean house. Anybody like a clean house in the room today? You just love a clean house. You're that person that takes your vacuum out and you make the line straight, right? And when someone walks on it, you're like, no, why did you do that? You know, and and you're always kind of cleaning the house and making sure it's perfect. That's good. It's good. You probably have a cabinet somewhere in your home with every type of 
cleaner, you know, and you just have all these different things that you can, you know, clean the home with, and you've got this for this and this for that, and all of this is wonderful. It's interesting to me that as we reflect upon our culture, there are some parts of our society that are just really repelling, you know, that are so saturated with wickedness and darkness, and yet at the same time, simultaneously, we have this particular obsession with purity, with cleanliness, You know, we're not the first generation that longed for outside cleanliness. In fact, outside cleanliness has been something that previous generations have longed for in many different manifestations. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus deals with some religious people who loved being clean on the outside. Look at his advice to them. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you are so careful. Would you say so careful? So careful, that was not that good, to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash, look at those words, first wash the inside of the cup or dish, and then the outside will become clean too. First wash the inside, and then the outside will become clean. In other words, what he's saying is, it's impossible for you to satisfy this deep inner urge for cleanliness unless you deal with your heart. You can do all the things on the outside. Use Purell 150 times, vacuum just right. You know, do everything that you can to do the outside clean. And those things aren't bad, by the way. But no matter what, there will still be this compulsive desire for cleanliness until you deal with what's inside. There's an inner cleanliness that once that is dealt with creates a foundation for all of life. God has always been after clean hearts. He's always been after clean hearts. If you know the Bible, you know that really from Genesis to Revelation, God's talking about the heart. And when he gives people the great command, he says the greatest command of all commands in the Bible is you must love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, cleanliness of heart. Isaiah uh, wrote down some of the thoughts of God when he said, these people worship me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. See, your heart, according to Scripture, is the place where everything springs forth from. It's not just emotion or anything like that. It's, it's your mind, it's your will, and it's your emotions. It's the seat of your person. That's what he's going after. The foundation of who you are, your heart. And God's always been after the heart. One uh, great philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, said it like this. This is really helpful for me. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience, but uh, by nature, it seems that I have a divided heart. That I have multiple things going on inside of me at the same time. That uh, whether it's I'm at a restaurant and I can't decide, you know, if I want to go with the cheeseburger or with the pasta or with the vegetarian thing. (laughs) Anyways, um, whatever it is that I'm going for, you know, so I'll battle with that. Or if I'm going shopping and and I've, I've gone to Dave Ramsey's class and so now I'm like, I don't know if I can even buy anything or should I buy anything or maybe I should put it in a 401k or, you know, and so you're kind of wrestling and struggling with a decision there. And, and I know that many times in my life, there'll be multiple feelings going on at the same time. Let me give you a few more serious examples. When I had uh, my first kid, now my wife actually had <clears throat> the kid, but I was a part of the process. And so when we had the first child, 
child. I remember she's sleeping and I'm holding the baby and I'm having this flood of emotions. You know, like I'm so excited. This is so amazing. This is so incredible. I'm going to be, I'm a dad now. I'm going to raise my son. It's so awesome. So that's once. And then at the exact same time, what the heck did I do? What am I going to do? How am I going to pay for this? How's this going to work? This tension inside of me. Come on, somebody say amen. Some parents say, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, when we started this church, we started with 20 people and they all liked me. So it was easy. But then, well, but then new people started to come. And before I knew it, there was 100 people, then 150, then 200 people. And as it grew and grew and grew, I started this feeling of, you know, at one side of me, he's like, I'm excited. I know God's told me to do this. People are going to meet Christ. Lives are going to be changed. Hearts are going to be awakened. Jesus is the most important person on planet Earth. And everyone's life will be better if he's at the center of their life. I believe this. I'm after this. And then at the same time, well, I just hope these people like me. And maybe what if they don't? And what if they don't approve of me? And, 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 and all of a sudden, these two tensions started to grow. These two tensions started to grow inside of me. I'm sure that if you think about your life, you can see that there's some double-mindedness. That's what James calls it. He says in James 4, he says, purify your heart, you double-minded. Double-minded, like you took two brains and smashed them in the same head and just said, figure it out. You know, ah, double, you know, double-mindedness. You know what I mean? David says it like this in Psalm 86, unite my heart. Isn't that an interesting prayer? Unite my heart. My heart is like a whole bunch of, you know, United States senators arguing about something. You know, we should do it this way. No, we should do it that way. That's what's going on inside me. And what his prayer was is like, God, would you just get us all on the same page? Would you just unite my heart? Unite my heart to fear your name. That was his prayer. Today, I want to talk to you about, I would consider the two great criminals of the heart. The two great criminals of purity of heart. Two great criminals of purity of heart. And the passage I want to look at is actually the passage that God brought me to to really bring a greater level of personal freedom in this area. And so I just love to share that with you right out of the guts of my own journey. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this is a letter written by Paul to a church that he loved very, very much. Paul was one of the founding fathers of the faith um, after Jesus died and rose again. And so now he's writing this letter to the uh, to First Thessalonians, there's two letters written to the church of Thessalonica. And uh, this is a little piece of the, his letter where he shares a little bit of his heart. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Oh, I'm liking this already. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether you, from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Go back to verse 5. Take another look at verse 5 there. It says this, here's our first criminal. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Some translations say a mask for greed, this desire for myself. The first criminal that I want to deal with this morning is what we'll call the centrality of self. The centrality of self, or you could say it more simply, self-centeredness. 
self-centeredness. You can turn to somebody near you and say, um, you have a problem with this. Go ahead, just tell them. You have a problem with this. You have a problem with this. I knew you'd feel encouraged when you came to church today. You have a problem with this, you know. Uh, We all have a problem with this, in fact. Self-centeredness is something that just comes very naturally to us. I mean, we all think about number one first. I I like to think of um, George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, that old movie that you watch around Christmas time, you know, where George Bailey helps his dad, and then he helps his uncle, and then he helps his brother, and then he helps his mom. And towards the end of the movie now, he's been around for a while, he has four or five kids, he has a wife and a shabby house, and he just freaks out. And he says, why do we have to have all these kids? Right? If you've ever said that, you don't have to say amen right now, but why do we have to have all these kids? And then he goes, I just want to do what I want to do. Maybe you've thought that before. Every one of us at one point in our life has thought that before. I just want to look out for me. Last week was my son's birthday. You can send gifts to the church if you want. He's six. He likes Legos, Chima, Legos especially. Just make sure they're not demonic. But anyways, he, uh, we took him to a trampoline park. We took him to a trampoline park, which is a ton of fun. And of course, me and my wife, strangely, were like two of the only adults in the trampoline park. We were like, hey, why are we here? And um, all the rest are kids. But we had a lot of fun at the trampoline park. And we were waiting to jump into the foam pit. Of course, obviously, if you're going to go, you need to jump in the foam pit. And while I'm waiting, I'm talking to my wife. We're having so much fun. Kids are having a blast. Everything's great. And this little seven-year-old kid cuts right in front of me in line. And I was like, I'm going to punch this kid in the face. Like, there was just something in me that was like, how dare you cut me in line, kid? And I didn't know what to do. And I was preparing this sermon, thinking about it. And I'm like, I want to jump in the pit. I got to wait an extra five minutes for this kid who just slipped in front of me. He's probably been in it 25 times already. It's my first time. I want in. And I remember just in that moment, like internally battling, like, no, Justin, don't do it. You have to talk about this on Sunday. Don't do it. And I remember just kind of reeling it in and just being like, yeah, babe, I'll be just another minute. This kid caught me. I'm like saying it out loud, you know, and make him feel bad. He didn't care. But the centrality of self, this deep thing on the inside of us that just wants me, number one, I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what's important for me. Now, I believe that this is really the root of all the problems in the world. See, culture would say that the problems in the world are rooted in, you know, some type of maybe environment change, you know, like, hey, if we, I'm not talking climate change, I'm talking environment change, like, you know, for example, like maybe we, uh, if we just got them more education, they would be more successful, maybe someone who's failing, or maybe if, uh, if we just move them out of that environment, that would be helpful. Now, environment is important, but environment isn't the root of the problem. See, the book starts with a really good environment, and yet the people still blow it up, right? Eden was a pretty sweet place to live. They had no problems, they had no issues, no sickness, no pain, no death. Pretty good place to live. And yet, what was the root of the problem but self-centeredness? I want to be God. I want to be number one. I want to be first. And that was the promise of the fruit that they ate, that it would produce that in their lives. See, you can have all kinds of education. You can be the smartest person intellectually in the room. You can have all types of money in the bank. You can have all types of success and all types of things attached to your name. But if you're still self-centered, you'll never see God. You'll be blind. Second criminal. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians here. I want to read this second criminal. This first one is this centeredness on self. Second criminal here, verse 6. It says, nor do we seek glory from people. Oh. Go, gotta go there. Whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So the second criminal of the heart that causes impurity in my motives, first is this self-centeredness, and then second is what we'll just call the fear of man. The fear of man. 
I have this need for others to tell me that I'm great. I need them to say that they like me. I need them to say that I'm good enough. I need my dad to affirm me. I need my mom to celebrate me. I need my uncle. Now, there's a part of this, of course, that is healthy. You want those around you to love you and care for you, and that's a normal, healthy, godly thing, and yet it's not too long before the heart becomes distorted. Yep, you know it. And all of a sudden, you find yourself controlled by someone else's opinion. And whether it's your boss or your spouse or your friend, you find yourself compromising your values values and compromising your character just to earn their approval the fear of man i just if they just would accept me if they would just approve me if they would just celebrate me and so what happens is your heart becomes contaminated by self-centeredness and the fear of man and these things mix together on the inside of you to such a degree that no longer is your heart pure in fact it never was pure and now because it's not pure you have a hard time seeing God blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God years ago I uh, had a privilege of going to Iceland and in Iceland, there's not that many things to do because it's cold and rainy and dark. And, uh, and so you can go to the Blue Lagoon, which I would highly recommend. It's a huge geothermal spa, warm water, lots of fun. But you could also go see some geysers. Now, geysers are holes in the ground that shoot water. But they're awesome. I mean, they're really cool. And they're very, very beautiful. And so uh, we were brought to go see this geyser. And here I am in Iceland. Don't get too many chances to go to Iceland in your life. And so I'm thinking, boy, we want to make the most of this. And so I'm sitting in the car, excited about going to see a geyser. But as we're sitting in the car and we arrive at the geyser viewing place, I realize that I have to get out of the car in order to see the geyser. And it's like a million below zero outside. And the wind is howling. And it's this little sleety, rainy, nasty stuff. And the car is actually moving because of the intensity of the wind. And now I'm thinking, it feels really good inside the car. You know, it's warm in here. It's cozy in here. It's a hole in the ground that shoots water. Maybe it's not worth the sacrifice personally. But I thought, you know what? This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Let me get out of the car and go see this geyser. And so I get out, and I'm going to see the geyser, and I'm with my friends. And, you know, in a moment like that, you want to hear what they're thinking about. You say, hey, what are you thinking about? But the wind was so strong, it was like, hey, yeah. And they're like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. And within a few minutes, we realized there's no communication that's going to happen that's effective here. And so I found that the voices around me needed to be silenced if I was ever going to get to this geyser. And so we walk around the corner, down the river, up the thing, around the block, back and forth, and we finally get there, and it is glorious. It is beautiful. It is incredible, and it was worth it. It was worth it. But in order to get there, I had to deny self. And in order to get there, I had to silence the voices all around me. See, there's something more beautiful than self-interest. That's what I'm trying to get at today. There's something more beautiful than self-interest. And there's something more satisfying than the applause of the crowd. There's something more beautiful than self-interest. Something more satisfying than the applause of the people around you. And it's to see God. It's to see God. It's that glorious sight. So where does purity of heart come from? This is where the sermon gets good, by the way. I mean, maybe you thought it was good already, but this is where it gets really good. Where does purity of heart come from? I hope you, I hope you thought it was good. I mean, if, as long as, okay, because now I'm getting a little insecure about it, and I'm, you know. <laughs> Verse three. That was a joke. I don't care what you think. <clears throat> Verse three. <laughs> For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
Here's where purity of heart comes from. But just as we, this is so good, have been approved by God. Just as we have been approved by God. I want to give you the two great heart purifiers. Just like think of an air purifier, the things that purify air. Or think of a hand purifier, the things that purify your hands. I want to give you the elements of a soul purifier, of a heart purifier. When applied to your heart on a consistent basis, it will sanctify, clean up, purify. I hope that was Jesus, your motives, right? So the first great heart purifier is this. You can jot it down. A pure heart comes from gospel approval. He said, just as we have been approved by God, a pure heart comes from gospel approval. Theologians call this positional purity. Stay with me. This is the revelation, the conviction that I am pure because I've trusted in the sacrifice of Christ and the cross. This is the belief that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for my sins and that in dying for my sins, he paid my penalty in full. This means that I don't have to confess my sins perfectly to be forgiven. By God. This means that I don't have to earn back his favor by giving enough money or giving enough time or giving enough resources to have God like me. This is the revelation that he already likes me because Christ has taken my place. And in Christ, the wickedness of my life was placed upon the cross so that the perfection of his life could be placed upon me. That's the revelation of positional purity. A pure heart comes from gospel approval, just as we have been approved by God. It purifies the heart. Acts chapter 15, verse 9, in speaking about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, the Jews said this, Paul said, or Peter said this, he said, God made no distinction between us and them. Look at what happened. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. You know what happens when gospel approval gets deep in you? This is so good. I didn't come up with it, so I can't take any credit. You know what happens when gospel approval gets deep inside of you? It unhooks the chains of the fear of man. See, when you know that God approves you deeply, internally, you don't need the celebration of those around you to feel validated. That's what happens on the inside. And so here's what I'm getting at. To the degree that you grasp gospel approval will be the same degree that you experience freedom from what the crowd says. And so if you're here today and you're battling with, oh, I just hope my boyfriend likes me enough, or I just hope this person likes me enough, or I just hope my boss approves of me, or I just hope that, you know, my parents think I'm good enough, and all these different things, and some of this by nature is not a bad thing to want to honor and love those around you, but you know exactly when it gets crooked inside of you, and all of a sudden you're compromising your values and compromising your character just to make somebody else like you. And so in that moment, you can say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, I've been fully forever forgiven. I've been adopted into God's family. I've been sanctified. I've been washed clean. God loves me. He's forgiven me of all my sins. He's given me purpose and destiny. He loves me for eternity. I am his child. I am approved by God. My positional purity allows me to not need their approval anymore. That's so good. Verse 4. Verse 4. As you know. No, excuse me. That's the wrong spot. Verse 4 says, But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... Excuse me, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with 
the gospel. Here's the second great heart purifier. We're going somewhere. Stay with me today. A pure heart comes from gospel responsibility. Gospel responsibility. Let me try to unpack this for you. Uh, Theologians call this practical purity. So positional purity, practical purity. Practical purity is this inner conviction that says, you know what? God has given me a great mission. My life here on earth is not to be a doctor or not to work at Best Buy or not to be a stay-at-home mom or not to even be, you know, a, a, a construction worker or a dad or a, or a mother. These are not, now all these things are important and God honors them and he cares for them, but there's a higher purpose in my life. The higher purpose is that I am called to be Christ on this earth. I am called to be the face of Jesus in a world that doesn't know him. I am called to be a missionary and in everything I say and do, exude the love of God. And I'll do it imperfectly because I'm imperfect. But I already have gospel approval, so I know that he loves me. And then out of that gospel approval, I begin to take on a gospel responsibility. Look how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the Fear of God. So my heart becomes purer and purer and purer as I see the great responsibility that God's given me to exude Christ, to display Christ all across the earth. And you know what happens when the mission of God gets bigger in your own mind? Bigger than your studies? Oh, uh-oh. Bigger than your parents? Bigger than your job? Bigger than your future plans? When the mission of Jesus becomes the greatest vision that you have for your life, I just want to be a part of God's mission. You know what it does? It strangles the power of self-centeredness. That's what it does. It kills that second criminal of the heart. Because the greater the mission of God becomes in your own eyes, the clearer you can see That you don't want to live focused on self. Just as we've been approved by God, gospel approval, and entrusted with the gospel, gospel responsibility. Purity of heart, you can jot this down if it helps you. Purity of heart springs from gospel approval and gospel responsibility. This is where a pure heart comes from. And that's why Paul says right after this, he says, We aim not to please man. But to, and there's the one thing. Remember Soren Kierkegaard, he said, purity of heart is to will one thing. What's the one thing? That we may please God. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. That's what I want with my life. I want to please God. I want to please God who tests my heart. I want to please God who tests my heart. story about a man during World War II in Italy. There was this guy in World War II. He's a factory worker. And uh, on his way home from work one day, he gets off the city bus and uh, starts his way home. And he sees this little dog. Any dog lovers in the house? Dog lovers? Okay. Sees this little dog. And uh, the dog's all beat up, starving, got all types of problems physically. This Guy scoops up the dog, brings him home, patches him up, feeds him some food. Dog starts to recover. A few days go by, weeks go by, the dog gets healthy. This dog becomes so deeply committed to its master, you know. And uh, every day, the master would get off the bus, and the dog would be sitting at the bus stop waiting for him. And he wouldn't move until the master got off the bus. 
you know, and so he'd just wait, wait, wait for his master. And the master would get off the bus, the dog would run to him, lick him and everything, and then they'd, they'd walk. Uh, he'd use some hand cleaner to deal with his hands right after. And so then they'd walk back to the house. And they did this day after day after day. Well, this was during World War II, and there were air raids over Italy, bombing and everything else. And so one day, the master gets on the bus, and uh, while he's at work, his, his place of work, he gets bombed, and he is killed. And so the bus pulls into the station to drop off all the people and the dogs sitting there waiting for his master and the master's not there and so one person gets off another person gets off another person gets off and then uh, finally the bus closes its doors and drives away and the dog's just sitting there and realizes that his master is not there he's a little confused by that he waits for just a couple more minutes and then he finally kind of slowly walks home and uh, the next day after that the dog uh, goes to the house again or goes to the bus stop again, excuse me, and he, he gets to the bus stop and he waits for the master and the people get off the bus and every one by one by one get off the bus. His master's not there. The dog waits. The bus finally pulls away. The dog is left there and then he finally walks back home. The third day, the dog goes back to the bus stop again, same time, same place. He's there waiting, sitting there. All the people get off the bus and um, the master's not there. And fifth day, sixth day, dog goes back to the bus stop seventh day two weeks later that dog every single day has gone to that bus stop two months later that dog has uh, been going to that bus stop true story this dog went to that bus stop at that time and waited for that bus to unload his master for 14 years and you know I, I read that story and I just thought why do we complicate this so much if a dog gets it why is it that we don't purity of heart is to will one thing I wrote a song a long time ago I was 19 years old I was asking God to purify my heart the words to the verse were uh, deep within this fragile man beyond distraction doubt and pride there's a heart that beats with hope there's a love I can't explain and the chorus said and you have broken all my defenses You've overtaken all my cares. I am consumed by this one ambition. I just want to follow you. I just want to please you. I just want to wait here for you. I just want to be centered on you. You know, it says in this passage that um, the pure in heart get an incredible privilege. It says that they see God. That's pretty incredible. Now, does that mean that you're going to see God face-to-face in heaven? Yep, it does. If you've trusted in Christ, experienced positional purity because he's washed you of your sins, and then you begin to practice practical purity, yes, yes, you will see God in heaven. Does it mean that you may see him here on earth in some manifestation or form? Sure, it could mean that. But I think there's another meaning here. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure. And I think he was going after something else. For they shall see God. And I think a secret is hidden in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 in the Bible. When it says this about God. Look at this phrase. It says, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. He's looking. He's all looking. This God has eyes and he's looking everywhere. Now, of course, we know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And yet at the same time, it says he's looking. Well, how does that work? Well, he gets to be God. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts, ah, he's back on the heart thing, to strengthen those whose hearts 
are partly committed to him. That's not what it says. To strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Here's the revelation I want you to meditate on this week. You can jot it down if you'd like. Simple. An undivided heart will get God's undivided attention. I said an undivided heart will get God's undivided attention. Will you see God in heaven? Yeah. Could you see some manifestation of him on earth? Sure. But here's what I know. If you want to walk with God in an intimate way, if you want to know his voice, if you want to see him in life circumstances, he's looking for an undivided heart. Now, somebody might say, well, theologically, God sees everywhere. I know that. I'm not saying that he's not giving his attention to someone else. What I am saying is that God is intentionally looking for those whose hearts are set apart for him. And when he finds someone who's purified their heart through gospel uh, acceptance, I believe I'm accepted, I receive it, God, and then gospel responsibility. I'm going to live this mission you've given me, and it's suffocating my self-interest, and it's killing my fear of man, and I can be more and more pure today, God, than I was yesterday because the gospel's gotten deeper in my soul, and I can be more pure today because I can see the responsibility you've given me to be your light on this earth as these things become bigger and bigger and self and fear of man become smaller and smaller my heart gets purer and purer and in the process the pure in heart walk with God they see God they see him because an undivided heart gets his attention every time here's your prayer for the week we've been giving you just a breath prayer every week in this process we've got two more weeks after this Here's your prayer for the week. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's the prayer David prayed. I can't can't think of a better one. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. God, my heart's all divided. Would you this week unite it? Would you do something profound in me? Would you remove every compartment and allow me to be united in my desire for you alone? Just stand on your feet with us this morning.